you have to not just teaching, well, let it not just be knowledge, but let it uh, be deep in our hearts, but it will transform our lives through your word, Lord. We know you have the power. We thank you for our, your continuing grace toward us and your gospel truth for us. Amen. Thanks. That's a good reminder. We have a, a great privilege to be able to look at God's Word, and this is God's Word, so it's not just an ordinary book, and we want to understand it, not just so we can know uh, more information, but so that we can know God and really hear God speak to us. And so we are looking at the Old Testament, and this is uh, kind of an introduction, but we're in our sixth a class already, so it's kind of amazing to me. It's, it's taking us a while. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. I uh, love talking about the Old Testament because it is uh, God's Word, and it is uh, life-changing, and it's underappreciated. It's about three-quarters of our Bible, the Old Testament, and yet many people don't really know how to benefit from it, and so they are just working with the New Testament when they read their Bibles, which is great, of course, because it's God's word as well. But so much of the New Testament is based on the Old Testament. And so uh, you're not even going to really benefit from the New Testament as much as you could if you don't know the Old Testament. And so we've been uh, going back to the basics and um, talked about, we talked about what the Old Testament fundamentally is. It's got so many different kinds of materials in it, but it is a story. It's telling us God's big story. It's a mega story. And then we looked at the Old Testament itself, the content, and what exactly are we talking about when we talk about the Old Testament, and then how it's organized. And we talked about these two different ways the Old Testament is organized. We have our English Bibles organization, and then the Hebrew Bibles, uh, the way the Hebrew Bible organizes it. And we saw the Hebrew Bibles organization helps us a little bit because it helps us understand how the story goes, specifically the uh, introduction is Genesis and the conclusion is uh, Chronicles. And then uh, since it's a story, we're trying to summarize the last couple of weeks how the story itself goes. It's kind of like if uh, somebody's reading a book that you loved and they come to you and they're like, I don't understand that book at all. And you're trying to think, how do I help them understand the book? You probably would you probably would start by trying to quickly explain the story for them. Well, that book's about this. And understanding that story then will help you understand the specific parts and sections of the story as you're reading it. So whenever you look at something specific that's part of something bigger, if you don't understand the connection to the bigger picture, then you don't understand the specific thing, no matter uh, how much you know about it. So like if I put a dollar bill on the table, and uh, you don't know what a dollar bill is, and you study the dollar bill, and you memorize the dollar bill, everything on it, and then someone asks you to explain the dollar bill, and you talk about how it's green, and you talk about the picture on the front, and you get all of that right, and yet you don't realize what the dollar bill is for, uh, and you use it for um, like toilet paper or something, then clearly you don't really understand the dollar bill even if you can explain all the specifics, because you don't understand how it fits into this big scheme. And no matter how much you know about the specific details of individual stories in the Bible and all the facts of the Old Testament, if you don't understand the bigger story, then you aren't really going to understand what is going on. And yet that seems difficult to do, 
because the Old Testament just seems so long. Uh, it's kind of like uh, reading the Old Testament. It's kind of like when someone's telling you a story and it's like they're taking you such a long time to tell you that story. Maybe like how you feel sometimes when I'm preaching <laughs> and your mind starts to wander and then you you realize that and you start paying attention again in the middle and you're like, wait, where are we? How does this connect to everything else? And in fact, that's what I'm often trying to do when I'm trying to explain something actually, and also when others are trying to explain something to me. You know how uh, humans are when they're trying to explain something. They go this way and they go that way. And so we're trying to explain something and then we get interested in something else and we talk about that for a while. And so it can get confusing listening to people. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, especially when I'm counseling someone and I'm trying to understand what they're telling me, after they talk for a while about something that seems off topic, I'll often go back and I'll say like, okay, so this is where you started and this is what you're trying to say and this, what you just said now fits into what you were trying to say, how? Um, or it fits into the point you're trying to make this way, right? And so we're trying to do that a little with the Old Testament as we read it and as we begin to study it by looking at the major sections in the story. And we're trying to summarize the Old Testament story with several main chapters, you might say. And we began last time where the Bible does, which is at the beginning, in other words, at creation. And we find uh, the first description of creation in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. And the main characters in that part of the story are God, Adam, and Eve. And while it only takes up a couple pages in our Bible, this part of the story is absolutely vital that we get it right. Because the biblical story is going to be different than most of our stories, like radically different. Um, because the biblical story is answering a lot of the same questions that people and every other story answers, like who are we? Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's wrong with us? What's the solution? But it answers it in, in, in such a different way. And some of the foundational principles for understanding God's answer to that question are found here, which if you don't get right, you're really not going to understand the rest of the story. And we get many of those foundational principles in the very first verse, you remember. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there's a beginning to the universe, but not to God. And we talked about two characteristics of God that are related and fundamental. He's everlasting, he has beginning, no beginning, he has no end, and he has no needs. And that actually shapes the whole rest of the story. If God has needs, the story that we're going to read would be very different. Everything would be different. Second, because he's a creator, he's not created. He's outside of creation. And so there are two kinds of things. There's creator and there's created. There's God and there's not God. And that's important because we're going to talk about God's love and God's relationship with the world. But as we do, we have to understand we're not equals. God and God and you, we're not equals. So when you read this story, it's really important you, you understand God's not your equal. Third, and this was really unique back in the days when Moses was writing, this is not something you would find anywhere. And that is in the beginning, God created not God's created. So there's one God, 
And that one God has absolutely no rivals. And this is going to be one big thing God wants us to know as we read this story. He's in a position of absolute sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty. And that's going to be especially important as we look at the book of Exodus. And yet, fourth, this God who is king and created all things is personal. So he's transcendent, and yet he's close. He's personal. He's speaking, and we're going to see he's in, he interacts with humans. He's not just an idea. He's not just a force. He's a person. He has relationships. He can interact, and he wants to interact, and he wants to have relationships. Fifth, and this is key because it's so different than how things are now, but fifth, God created this world that we're living in good. And it's hard to miss that as you read the first chapter, right? Because it says, God said, God made, and God saw that it was good over and over and over again. Good, 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 good. And then in chapter 1, verse 31, behold, it was very good, which we're familiar with, but sometimes we can miss the implications of that. And people have throughout the years. And one example of how people have missed the implications of that is the fact that many people have a negative attitude towards a created things, towards physical, towards the physical like the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. And sometimes even Christians, you see that in the way they think about heaven. They think about heaven almost as completely spiritual and not physical, like just a bunch of souls floating around playing harp. I mean, I mean fake harps, I guess, because they're spirit harps all day, all day long. And you can see why in a world that's broken by sin, people get a negative feeling about physical things, but it was not broken originally. It was good. It was good. It was very good. God liked what he created. God liked what he created. Creation, so creation, the physical, is not the problem in this story. And that's going to be important for understanding what we're going to read because the end of the story is going to be very physical too. God is going to redeem what man has destroyed. Creation is good. And when God created the world, obviously he created non-animate things, uh, like, I think that's the word for that, like the earth and rocks. And he created animate things, like animals, fish, living things, and man. And so man is like the animals in, in that we are created by God and we're living creatures. And yet humans are clearly different as we look at the story. Six, we see that God gave man a unique purpose. And one of the ways that uh, Moses highlights that in the first opening chapter is by saying that God created man in the image of God. And so man alone is created in the image of God. And there's been lots of talk about what that means over the years, but basically it means that we're different. But how are we different? We're in the image of God. But what's that mean? And one way uh, people have thought about that is to look for something in man that makes him like God. This is called the substantive view. Like there's some substance somewhere in man that is what sets him apart from animals and makes him like God. But looking at the text, it's probably better to see the image of God as something man's called to do. In other words, it's kind of explained by the commands. And let them have dominion, let them rule, be fruitful, and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the sea. Man was created to rule. So a quote, God created man, Adam, to serve as his representative in governing the creation which is why wherever you see men go, they are bringing this earth into um, subjection. They're, they're, they're ruling and why people do things like be accountants, computer, computer programmers, and all of those things. It's because it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But ultimately, 
God's plan for the world is something we call a mediatorial, to establish something we call a mediatorial kingdom, which is a big word, but God is creating a place, a kingdom, and he's obviously the ruler of that kingdom, but he's choosing, we see at the beginning of the story, he's choosing to exercise his rule in this place through a divinely chosen representative, a man, someone who's part of the human race, not an animal, not an angel. And yet, obviously, God's not going to be absent. One of the things that made creation special before the fall was that God gave man the opportunity to enjoy a unique relationship with him. And this was chapter two. And so we learned in chapter two about this place on the planet (laughs) called the Garden of Eden, where man was able to meet with God and enjoy God in a special way, a unique unique way. And maybe you remember Genesis 1 kind of ends with this big climax where God presents the Sabbath as the goal of creation. God resting, enjoying, satisfied with creation, and man enjoying this special relationship with with God. Man was created to live in God's place and experience God's presence. But you know all that was contingent on something, enjoying that. Man needed to be willing to listen to God's instruction, to believe that God wanted his best and to obey. To see if he would do that, God gives man a test, which seems small to us, this one tree that he wasn't allowed to eat from. But the way God organized the world was that Adam and Eve were serving as our representatives and the temptation to eat of the forbidden fruit was a specific test to determine whether or not humankind, as represented by Adam and Eve, would be satisfied with their representative status or whether they would want to take charge for themselves and be God. And of course, we know uh, they wanted to take charge for themselves and be God, which takes us into the second part of the story, which we could call uh, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, or we could call just the falls, really. And that's Genesis 3 through 11. And I know I'm reviewing, um, but one way we learn is through repetition. And so it's good for me and it's good for you and um, for us, really, to think about how you tell the story. And so the main characters in this part of the story would still be God, Adam and Eve, but now also Cain and Abel, Seth, uh, Noah and Abraham. And so Satan attacks God's plan in the garden. If God's got a plan to establish his kingdom, you might say Satan has a plan to establish an anti-kingdom. And shockingly, uh, though man was created to rule over the animals, basically man ends up allowing an animal to rule over him, which we know was a a snake who was um, really used by Satan. And God comes and he gives man a chance to repent, but they don't. They blame each other instead. And God judges and the world is cursed. First of all, Yahweh Denotes the, demotes the serpent to the lowest of creatures, and then God curses the ground, and he makes it more difficult for man to produce what he needs. Then there's death. Now, you remember, God gives has to kill an animal to give clothes to Adam and Eve, and all the formal, formerly peaceful relationships are disturbed. So there's now, there's problems between man and the woman, there's problems between God and humans, there's problems between humans and the land, there's problems between the woman and her offspring. And so we're wondering, we should be wondering, how's this going to get fixed? And we might be looking to man to start, since man is the one who rebelled. Will man be able to fix what he's broken through his rebellion? And in these first 11 chapters, the answer doesn't look good, because chapter 4 starts with Cain killing his brother, and then goes all the way to this man named Lamech, who is boasting about murder. And then there's chapter 5. You read this chapter, and what you're going to see is this phrase, and he died over and over and over and over again. 
And then chapter 6, which we looked at during the retreat, verse 5 tells us, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, which has to be a couple of the saddest verses in the whole Bible, only evil continually. And so it's like God decides to start the world all over again. That's the flood, God protecting the seed, which is what we learned about this weekend, and God giving the world a bath, cleansing it. And he picks the most righteous man on the planet to save and begin again. And so it's almost like this is a question. The world's really bad. What if God just started the world over again? What would happen? And actually, when we walk through this in the future, because we're going to get to Genesis, but we're going to see there's a lot of similarities between what happens in Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 6 through 8, between Adam and Noah. It's like totally parallel. But unfortunately, there's also a lot of similarities between what happens after, because there's another fall. Uh, Noah ends up eating the fruit of the vine and, and naked and ashamed, just like Adam. And there's more judgment, and there's a, there's a promise, which we'll look at. But even though God began after Noah, uh, he began again, it's only a little while until chapter 11, and we read something about the, called the Tower of Babel, or the Tower of Babylon, really, which is basically all of mankind gathering together to do what Adam did, but worse, to shake their fist at God and say, we will not obey you. So that's a lot of bad news in the first two parts of the story. Creation, then fall. But the Old Testament, obviously, is not only bad news. And this third main section in the story is where we start getting some hope. And we can summarize this part of the story as promise. So you have creation. You're trying to understand your Old Testament. You have to get the first part of the story right, creation. Then the second part of the story, the fall, not just to understand the Old Testament, but to understand yourself. What's the fundamental problem with human beings? They won't trust the goodness of God, and they won't submit to God's rule of their life, over their life, and we see all the consequences of that. But this is the third part of the story. Promise, promise, promise. The Bible doesn't just tell you all this bad news to uh, tell you bad news. Uh, part of why it tells you all this bad news is so that you can understand uh, the good news. And part of the purpose of the Old Testament is to help you understand the good news is very good news. In fact, uh, Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, talks to Timothy about the Old Testament. And listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 17. Paul uh, has basically said, this world's going to be super bad, and there are going to be all kinds of evil people all around. But as for you, Timothy, this is the beginning of verse 14, but as for you, you need to be different. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so what can the sacred writings, the set of writings, the Old Testament do? Paul says they are able to make you wise for salvation. In other words, the Old Testament can help you understand how salvation works. So this is a book about how God rescues, about how God brings man out of exile back into his presence and how you can be part of that through faith in Jesus. One uh, man summarizes the Old Testament. He says, the Old Testament is about God bringing glory to himself by restoring paradise after humanity lost it to a loss of faith in God that led to rebellion against his rule. 
And not just about God fixing the world, but providing a way for us as humans to experience that. God's going to enable us to live in his presence again. And Paul says the Old Testament makes us wise for understanding that, how God did it and how we can be part of it. God has a certain way of rescuing people, and we need wisdom to understand it. In fact, it's clear that we need wisdom to understand it. If you, apart from revelation, you will always get salvation wrong. You'll always get salvation wrong. Common grace will not get you far enough, and general revelation will not get you far enough because of the self-righteousness of our heart. We need the Old Testament. We need wisdom to be able to understand how God saves people. And we saw in Genesis 1 to 11, one key part of the wisdom the Old Testament reveals about salvation is that salvation is not going to come from us. It's not going to come from our efforts. It's not going to come from our achievements. And it takes a lot of work to help humans understand this because we don't want to accept that. But the first 11 chapters of the Bible couldn't be more clear. There is no way that man is ever going to save himself. But if that's not it, then how? If it's not coming from inside of creation, the solution must be coming from outside of creation. And there's only one person outside of creation, which means our only hope is in God. And what the Old Testament's written to explain is, how is there hope in God? Because it's kind of a mystery. First of all, because he's holy and we're not. Second of all, because he's the creator and we're created. And so how does he fix this? How does he show mercy while remaining just? And then because of his, because we know his goal was to rule over this earth through a divinely chosen representative, a human, how is he going to do that with humans being sinners? And with that, how is God going to live with people the way we are? And how are we going to live with God without dying? And so he reveals his plan in the Old Testament. But he does it slowly. That's what's going on here. He does it slowly. It's not all at once. Progressively is a word we would use. Progressive revelation. That means piece by piece, God reveals how he's saving us. And God has a reason he does it slowly. It's because salvation is so big. It takes time to understand. But as we work our way through the Old Testament, we're getting one part. And that's not the whole part, but it's going to be important for understanding the next part. It's like if I teach you to read, obviously it's a a process. I teach you some letters, and then I teach you more letters. But you don't learn some letters and then say, I know how to read. But at the same time, if if I teach you a part, I say I'm teaching you how to read. I'm giving you content, and then I'm going to keep adding to that content until you have all you need to know. And that's how God's teaching about salvation in the Old Testament. But he is teaching And even though we don't get it all at once, the different parts flesh out different facets we need to know if we're going to understand how salvation works. That's really the main theme of the Old Testament, salvation, how it works. Or more specifically, Jim Hamilton, he's written a book, Biblical Theology, says salvation, the Old Testament, the theme of the Old Testament, the center of the Old Testament is salvation through judgment to the glory of God. So salvation means God is going to show mercy. Judgment means God punishes sin. But what's amazing is that God has a way of showing mercy and rescuing sinners through judging sin. So it's not just salvation from judgment to the glory of God. It's actually the theme of the Old Testament is salvation through judgment to the glory of God. What we see in the Old Testament is that God has devised a way 
to show mercy, to show his mercy, and to show his wrath at the same time, which seems impossible. And why God gets the glory and why we're not going to figure it out all on our own and why we need the Old Testament to understand it and understanding how it's going to work begins with understanding God's promise. So we've said before, the Old Testament, you can summarize it as promises made. That's what you're looking for when you read the Old Testament, the promise plan of God. There's a professor named Walt Kaiser, and I'm telling you these names because these are good names to know, and you might want to read some of what these men have written, but he summarizes the Old Testament this way, at least the flow of the Old Testament, because again, there's these different details. How do you put these details together? He says it's all part of the slow revealing of the promise plan of God. And what does that mean? What's a promise? A promise is a declaration or an assurance to someone about the future. It's an assurance about what someone will be or what someone will do. And what's a plan? A plan is a detailed strategy for how you're going to do something. So God has this detailed strategy for how he's going to fix the universe. And in the Old Testament, he slowly reveals these statements he makes about how he's going to do it. And we might think of these as different promises, but ultimately they're all part of one big promise about what God is going to do in the future to glorify himself by saving through judgment. And if we look at the New Testament, we see this is how the early believers thought about the Old Testament. So in Luke 1, there's a man named Zechariah, and he's prophesying about Christ. And he's saying what Christ has come to do. And in Luke chapter 1, 68 through 72, he explains, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So Zechariah, when he looked at the Old Testament, he says it was revealing God's promise about how he's going to save us. Paul, too, in Acts chapter 13, he's preaching a sermon where he's summarizing the Old Testament and what's happened with Jesus. And he says, of this man's offspring, David's, he says, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Later on in Acts 26, he's talking to King Agrippa. He's on trial for his life, and he explains why in verse 6 and 7. He says, now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to God by our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And he's saying, Israel, they're reading the Old Testament. What are they focusing on? This promise. In Romans 1-2, Paul says he's been set apart for the gospel, which God promised beforehand in the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the gospel is the key message in the Bible and is promised in the Old Testament. And God actually starts revealing that promise right at the beginning. So the Old Testament, when you're reading it, what are the sections? It's creation, fall, promise, promise, promise. The Old Testament is God slowly revealing this plan piece by piece through these promises or through this promise he makes about how he's going to provide deliverance. And he begins helping us understand how he's going to do that right at the very beginning. So again, Genesis is such a key book because we see God's design for the world, the reason the world is not that way right now, where our problems come from, and we get the beginning of salvation as well, right after the fall, actually. Genesis 3. And usually we think about Genesis 3 as about judgment, 
But there's a lot of grace there. For example, God doesn't just wipe people out and start over again. That's, that's undeserved kindness. He provides garments to cover over their nakedness. That's grace. He drives them from the garden, which might sound tough, but actually it was grace because he doesn't allow them to have access to the tree of life, which would have made their fallen condition permanent without hope. He allows them to have children. He seems to have a continued relationship with them. In the next chapter, Cain and Abel are presenting offerings to God. So there must have been uh, more revelation, actually, that we don't have here in the Bible about how to even make those sacrifices. But one of the biggest evidences of his grace in the middle of the judgment is the fact that God makes a promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's called uh, the first gospel, Proto-Evangelium. And we'll look at this a little more when we go through Genesis, probably, but as God pronounces judgment, he begins with the serpent. And what does he say in verse 14? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so he talks to the serpent. Seems like there's two parts there. One, he talks to the serpent. And then one, he talks to this being who's using the serpent, who later in the Bible, Revelation, we learn is Satan, Revelation 12, 9. So the serpent's a real serpent, but one used by Satan, and both get judged. And we know, obviously, something's going on because the serpent talks. He knows about God's commands. And so this is a real serpent being used by Satan. And we read about the judgment on the serpent, and it's really not very harsh because he becomes a hated animal and he eats dust. But the judgment on Satan, who's using the serpent, is intense. God says he's going to put enmity between Satan and the woman. So Satan had acted like a friend to the woman, and the woman had acted like a friend to the serpent. And God says, no, I'm going to cement enmity between the two of you. And not just between this one woman and Satan, but between all of Satan's offspring and all of her offspring. So there's going to be a war going on between godly people and Satan and his followers. I think he's using offspring for Satan a little metaphorically. Um, remember when John the Baptist calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers? Or uh, Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees in John 8. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Or uh, John in 1 John 2, 2, he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And so there are going to be... Satan's going to have offspring, uh, humans and angelic followers who battle God's people. But God doesn't end there. In the next sentence, he says he. So now we're talking about a singular descendant of Eve. He's been talking about the seed of the woman. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And obviously offspring can be plural or it can be singular. It's one of those words. But one way you know whether or not it's plural or singular is the pronoun that is used after it. And so now, next, there's a singular pronoun, um, he, not they. So the, the promise is that there's going to be this he that comes in the middle of all these offspring. There's going to be a male descendant of Eve, uh, this one great representative, and he's going to bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent's going to bruise his heel. And so Satan was trying to use the woman to overthrow God's plan. 
but God is going to use the woman, and specifically a descendant of the woman, to defeat Satan. That's basically the promise. And he's going to do it through suffering. And there's parts in there that are fuzzy and that cause you to think, but that's the basic idea. There's hope. There are going to be good guys, and there's going to be bad guys, and there's going to be a lot of conflict. But from Eve, there's going to be a male descendant who's going to come, who's going to have victory over evil by defeating Satan through suffering. And you'll see this is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this picture of uh, a, a descendant of Eve or a great victor bruising the head of God's enemies. So even Balaam, who's a pagan prophet, one of the most important prophets and prophecies in the Pentateuch comes from this pagan prophet. But even, uh, but even Balaam talks about this future ruler who's going to come from Israel, who's going to bruise the head of God's enemies. The psalmist talks about this. Isaiah talks about this. Habakkuk talks about this. And biting the heel, that's obviously a snake bite. So the seed's victory is going to come at the cost of his own suffering. And so you can see how people would hope in that promise. It's an awesome promise. One old theologian has noted several things Adam and Eve could have known from this first gospel promise. One, that the redeemer and restorer of the race is to be a man, since he's to be the seed of the woman. Two, that he is at the same time to be a being greater than man and greater even than Satan, since he's to be the conqueror of man's conqueror and against all his efforts to recover a sinful world which man had lost. Three, this redemption shall be accomplished by vicarious suffering, since the redeemer shall suffer the bruising of his heel in the work of recovery. Four, that this work of redemption shall involve the gathering out of an elect seed, a peculiar people, an enmity with the natural offspring of a race subject to Satan. Five, that this redemption shall involve a perpetual conflict of the peculiar people under its representative head, head in an effort to bruise the head of Satan. And then fifth, six, this redemption shall involve the ultimate triumph after suffering of the woman's seed and therefore involves a triumph over death and a restoration of humanity, which is a lot and maybe a little bit more than what's there. But there's a lot of gospel just in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And you say, are you sure that Eve knew all that? I'm not sure that she knew all of that. I don't know. But she did know something. Because if we turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we see what Eve was hoping in. Uh, now uh, Adam knew, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the, with the help of the Lord. Or it just uh, literally says, I've gotten a man, the Lord. Um, and we don't know totally what she was thinking, but it seems like she may have been hoping that God was at work in her to, so that she would give birth to a male descendant because she knew that he had promised one of her descendants would reverse the curse. And the rest of the book of Genesis, in a sense, becomes a search for that individual. So if you say, what is Genesis about? It's really about who's going to be the seat, <laughs> who's going to be the, who's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15, which of course is one of the devastating things about Cain and Abel, right? Because Abel was righteous, looked perhaps like he was going to be the seed, and Cain killed him. And in a sense, he was killing the hope Eve had. And that's why they were so excited when they had Seth. But of course, that was just the start. Because from that point on, man gets more and more wicked. And the next few chapters we see, in the next few chapters, we see the world gets as bad as you think it could. And then God starts over. And after judging the world, he makes a couple more important statements. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. If you 
Look there, he continues. He makes another promise. And he says, uh, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So uh, people are so bad. Um, and we even saw there's a lot of weird stuff happening in Genesis 6 pre-flood that uh, is kind of mind-blowing that you might think, is this going to keep happening? Um, no, God says, you know, people getting wicked, everybody getting wiped out, or God just being done with it. God says, no, the earth is going to endure. The earth is going to endure until I provide this savior, until I, until I fix it. And in uh, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 9, he explains further. And he, he, this is actually the first covenant uh, in the Old Testament, at least the first that's explicitly described as a, as a covenant. In chapter 9, verses uh, 8 through 11, he says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so God makes uh, enters into a relationship with Noah and with every living creature. So this isn't just with humans. This is with everything. And God uh, is, is promising that he's going to do something with us and he's going to do something with his plan. He's not only going to judge us. Then he makes another promise or we find another explanation of how God is going to provide this salvation that's maybe a little more controversial, but it comes after Ham sins with his father in some way. You remember Noah comes out of the ark. It's like um, it's like the Garden of Eden, in a sense. Again, God says a lot of the same things to Noah that he said to Adam, like, bear fruit and multiply. Only now he has to do all this in a world that's broken by sin. So God makes animals afraid of man so that uh, Adam, I mean, so that Noah doesn't die. But uh, Noah quickly sins in, like I said, a similar way to how Adam sinned, at least in terms of the picture. He uh, eats the fruit of the vine or drinks the fruit of the vine, gets drunk, and Somehow his son Ham sins with him, and there's a couple different options to how Ham sinned with him. Um, probably uh, it could either be that um, Ham just saw his uh, father naked, and that was somehow shameful. It could be that Ham committed some sort of uh, homosexual like incest with his father. That's really what the, the the way the word's normally used. Or it could be. His father's nakedness there could be a way of describing his uh, Noah's wife, his 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 mother, which could be why Cain actually ends up getting cursed. But whatever Ham did, it was bad, and Noah curses his grandson Canaan. But even as he even as he curses, he provides this curse. He he uh, blesses his other sons, and listen to what he says in verses twenty six and twenty seven. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And again, Walt Kaiser talks about this and he says the way Hebrew works, if you have God as the subject here, may God enlarge Japheth and then you use a pronoun 
that pronoun is going to refer to God and not Japheth. So he's saying, let this is part of a blessing on Shem only, and saying, may God dwell in the tents of Shem. Let him, let who? God dwell in the tents of Shem. And Shem, of course, is the ancestor of the Semitic people, and the Jewish people are obviously Semitic people. And of course, if it's not referring to God, if the he is Japheth, it's still significant because it's saying that Shem and his descendants are going to rule over his brothers. And so again, this is just God expanding our understanding of his promised plan. He's going to defeat Satan. He's going to do it on this planet. And he's going to dwell with a certain group of people who he's identified as the Semitic people. And so those are some big statements. But as we keep reading the story, it goes the same direction it did before quickly. And everyone comes together to do what Adam did at the Tower of Babel. And you wonder in Genesis 11, what is God going to do? And what God decides to do is make a promise. He chooses this old man named Abram, and he meets with him, and he gives him one command and a big promise, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And this is the promise, really, uh, that the rest of the Old Testament flows out of. So this is probably the programmatic verse for understanding the rest of your Old Testament, Gen or verses, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's foundational. So we've gone through thousands of years. We don't even know how many thousands of years, actually, uh, since Genesis 1. Because the genealogies, they could either be complete, they could be selective. Those are kind of your two options. Sometimes uh, genealogies in the Old Testament, begat doesn't necessarily mean this is my son. It could actually be my great-grandson. So it could be thousands and thousands of years. It is thousands and thousands of years since uh, Genesis 1, since the flood. And we've gone through all that in just a few chapters. And now it all slows down, and the next uh, 25 years occupy 10 chapters. So, I mean, we don't even know how many thousands of years, first 11 chapters. 25 years, 10 chapters. So this is clearly important. Now the Lord said to Abram, and the last time we saw God speaking was at the Tower of Babel, but now he's speaking again. And what does he say? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what's the word that stands out to you reading that? Blessed. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And this is an answer to the curse. We would expect um, curse, especially after the Tower of Babel. And yet what we get here is blessing. And if we go back to the actual foundational curse, what were the primary issues in the curse back in Genesis 3? You had enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You had difficulty in childbearing and male-female relations. You had problems with the land, and you had exile from the presence of God. Now you think about what God's doing for Abraham. He says he's dealing with the problem of the seed. I will make of you a great nation. So his wife is barren. God's going to overcome that. God's going to give Abraham many descendants. And interestingly, if you think about their specific relationship, her barrenness was going to have produce all kinds of problems in their relationship. So God's given a solution to that. Land, go to the land, assumes land. In Genesis 12, 7, he says, I will give you this land. And we're going to learn about this land as we continue the Pentateuch and see that it's got the potential for reversing the problems man experienced with the land. 
There's going to be like a potential for a Garden of Eden-like state, really. And then protection and a positive relationship with God. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who dishonor you. And so we've got God's protection there. He's dealing with the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Later on, God's going to promise victory for a descendant of Abraham over all of his enemies. Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring, plural, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So all of a sudden we went from plural offspring to singular offspring. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God is dealing with, through this promise, the uh, problems that man has with others. And there seems to be hope for God dealing with the relational difficulties that have resulted in man's relationship with God as well. Because when God repeats this promise to Abraham, or repeats this promise to Isaac, excuse me, Abraham's son, we see that he adds a statement that's really important. Genesis 26, 3. He says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. And you have God's presence there. I will be with you. And so if you think about Adam and Eve being sent into exile away from God, here we're at least getting some hope for reversal of that. And then mission, finally mission, he says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, which gives the rest of us hope. This is not going to be just for Abraham. And it's going to tell us the purpose of the nation that we're reading about. We're going to look to these people to see how God's plan for bringing blessing and reversing the curse is going to work out. Abner Chow puts it like this. In this one covenant, God gives the power to reverse the curse to one unlikely broken family. The nation that God promised to make out of Abraham's seed became the nation of Israel, which means God fights. The purpose of Israel was to be a platform to show the world God's campaign against sin and the fall to be the spearhead of his war on sin and on the curse. And of course, it gets us wondering about how is God going to do this and bring the blessing to the world through this family, through this nation. And we're going to have to read the rest of the Old Testament to get the answer. But we're getting a lot already. You see that, right? This is really helping us. There's a problem. Genesis 1 through 11, nations are separated from God. They're under the curse of God. And there's a plan. There's the defeat of Satan through descendant of Eve. Who is it going to be? Semitic people. It's going to come from the Semitic people. Specifically, it's going to be a descendant of Abraham who's going to bring blessing to the world. But of course, as we finish Genesis, we might wonder, first of all, can God do this? Because there's lots of obstacles, right? to God reversing the curse. Physical obstacles, spiritual obstacles, just all the evil. And the rest of Genesis is going to show us God can overcome all these obstacles. you got Abraham and Sarah and her barrenness. And basically, God designs the seed to come in such a way that demonstrates nothing's impossible for God. And even there's a little picture he can raise the dead because she kind of had a dead wound. And God brought life to that dead wound. Then you've got Jacob and his lack of faith. And so that's a way of God saying even Israel's sin can't stop him from keeping his promise. And then you've got Joseph and just the problem of evil. 
And really, uh, we're going to see as we look at Joseph that God's really kind because in the story of Joseph, he gives us a preview of the whole Bible. If you just read the story of Joseph, you see the whole, how the whole thing works out. Absolutely how the whole thing works out. So God can do this. That question's answered. But second, we're also asking, is there any more information about who he's going to do it through? Because we know it's going to be a descendant of Abraham, but Abraham has a lot of a lot of descendants. He ends up having as many as the stars, you know. So it narrows to Isaac, makes it very clear it's going to come through Isaac, and then Jacob and his sons. And at first, as you read the story, you think it's got to be Joseph, right? But no, it's this wicked brother Judah. And you're thinking, how did Judah get to be the, the seed? And that's why the story of Joseph and Judah is told the way it is. And a, a lot of the rest of Genesis is written to help you understand how Judah is the promised seed. And to set you up for this great promise that comes at the end. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So the way the Pentateuch works, the first five books of the Bible, they're all, we're going to see this when we get more into the text, but like, the first five books of the Bible are all one story. They all go together. They're, it's amazing. And it, they're almost like a musical. So like in a musical, you know how there's like, you know, a lot of there's talking. Some musicals feels like it's mostly singing, but there's some, some musicals, it's like there's talking, and then there's like, a, everything slows down, and there's like a song. And in that song, you're supposed to find something important for the story. Well, that's the way the first five books of the Bible work. There are like, it's mostly like narrative, narrative, narrative. But there are these songs or poems, you could say, poems, just in the middle. There's like maybe four, four of them. And in those poems, you find the punchline. If you look closely about how God's going to provide salvation, and certainly in this one, you do Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Jacob is blessing his sons, and he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Again, that's kind of ironic because Joseph, that was what we thought was going to happen to Joseph. That's sort of like the, oh, whoa, it's Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crosses a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Or sometimes uh, you're, you might have the word Shiloh because it's a weird Hebrew word there. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his bowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And so that's poetry, obviously, which is a little hard for us. But he's going to be a leader of, the, of his brothers, the most important tribe. That's, that's clear. And that's why we call Jews Jews, right? Because the word Jude comes from Judah. <laughs> so even that shows that he becomes the most important. He says he's going to be a great conqueror. His descendants, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. He's going to be like a lion. And he talks about this ruler. And it sounds a little bit like there's going to be an end to his rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute or Shiloh comes to him. But either way, it sounds like there's an end. But no, it's, that's actually more like when God says, I'm going to be with you until I do all that I promised. It doesn't mean he's leaving that. He's just talking about the time of tribute coming or Shiloh coming as being the high point. So God is promising a ruler to come from Judah who's going to receive the obedience of the peoples. And that's like the end goal. 
And we'll talk more about that promise when we go through uh, Genesis, I think. But coming out of the first book of the Bible, we've got three key parts to the whole story. You got creation, you got the fall, and then you've got the beginning of this great promise plan. And you've kind of got a basic gist of how it's all going to work as you look at the story of, of, of Joseph, who, uh, you know, is uh, given revelation about how his brothers are going to uh, bow to him. Then he is rejected by his brothers. Then he is basically uh, lives this humble life as a slave. Then he is uh, thrown in prison, even though he's righteous for something he didn't do. That prison is basically like a kind of death for him. Uh, he's forgotten. And then suddenly it's reversed and he is exalted to the right hand of the king. He is enabled, he provides salvation for the rest of the world. And then his own um, family, he's reconciled with his own family in the end, as you see his brothers um, coming to him and their relationship uh, restored. And at the end, we look at all that terrible stuff and Joseph says, you know what, all that evil, man meant it for evil, but God was totally sovereign over it and he turned it for good. And so really by the end of Genesis, you kind of you kind of know how the, the whole rest of the story is going to go. But we still got some problems to deal with because Genesis begins in the garden and it ends in Egypt. It begins with life and it ends with death. In fact, the very last verse of Genesis, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so if we think of God's plan as bringing blessing and God's promise as bringing hope, it kind of feels like we're headed in the wrong direction. And the question is, what is God going to do now? Which is the fourth part of the story. He's going to make the nation of Israel. So creation, fall, promise, Israel. And this is going to take up almost the whole rest of the story. And that part of the story really begins in Exodus, which we'll look at uh, next week. We're almost through this introduction. Uh, and then we'll get to the actual books of, of the Bible. But I want us to really know what we're doing as we look at um, Genesis, as we look at Leviticus, as we look at, you know, Isaiah. And I'm convinced that all those specific parts become a lot easier to understand if the if you if you understand the big story. That's why I'm doing this. And then um, so we're going to finish off, try to finish off the key components of the story next week. And then I'm going to give you, uh, I think I'm going to give you um, just some basics you need to know about the land of Israel um, that will help as we read uh, the Bible in the weeks to come. And then just a couple key themes to look for. Also, how to read story and benefit from story. So like what the, what story is, the stories of the Old Testament are preaching, they're actually like they're preaching, but there's a little bit of a different way of understanding and getting the point. And so we'll talk about that. And then we'll finally dive into the, uh, the Pentateuch. But this is just a one hour class. So we, can, we just gotta, you gotta be patient, patient with me. Thanks guys. I'm glad to see some of you back uh, this evening. Hopefully everybody else will be rested up and back next week.
Um, any questions or thoughts or comments? Anything you can ask me from this weekend? We looked at some of us. Got anything, Levi? No? Not tonight. All right, well, if you do have questions, um, that's totally normal. I have lots of questions, too, when I read the Bible, so uh, please feel free. You can email me or ask me. It's wonderful. But thanks, guys, for coming out this evening. I appreciate it. appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Sweet.